But this is why industrial designers need to embrace and understand IoT, because it's coming, well, it's here, um, and you have to understand it, navigate it, and create better experiences. But traditionally, the people defending the people, the humans, right? Because we don't care too much about the sales figures or how many people buy something. I mean, we want it to be successful, but truly designers, we're, we're the ones that are trying to make the people have a good experience with the object, with the brand. So it's important that we know how IoT changes that experience and we make it a good one. Welcome to Design Drives, your audio experience about what, how, and why design drives things forward. A podcast hosted by Sebastian Gear, together with forward-thinking design practitioners from around the world. In this episode, I talk with Paul Hedge, founder of the Teams Design Studio in the States. We talk about the origin story of the process largening the footprint of the well-known design brand in America 20 years ago, but also touch on the rest of his journey, all the way to his studies, where he studied at the same school than Johnny Ive just a few semesters below him, but also learn about his trip to Germany, knocking at the doors to get an internship abroad at a leading design studio, where we also recognize how much easier it is these days for students. We also learn about the history and difference between US and European design, but it's not just about the past. We also build on that and look into the future. We learn about how UX design has and will continue to influence industrial design, where every designer should know and learn about IoT, the Internet of Things, but we also learn about how AI will change design moving forward. Again, just like previous episodes, this is a collaboration of Design Drives and IDSA, the Industrial Designers Society of America. Enjoy the episode. Hey Paul, how are you doing? Good, good, thanks. Really excited to interview you and talk with you about um, design. So it will be really interesting in the beginning to give the audience a little bit of context about your background. Maybe mm -hmm. start with the early days, why you went into design uh, in the first place. Yeah, uh, great place to start, uh, certainly in the, the time frame. The, it actually started quite early, I guess. There, there were certain um, signs, I guess, um, mm -hmm certain uh, signs early early on, which I didn't realize at the time. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, I did go to art and design college at age 16. I, I left school early and specialized in art and, art and design. Uh, but the background of that was, as a child, I was certainly into art. I was also quite academic at school, so I was into math and physics and all the other subjects were fine, but I really got my teeth into the art side of things. But in retrospect, in thinking back to what I actually did, in addition to just doing drawing and exploring, sketching and art in various ways, I, I was also known to my parents as the little inventor. Mm -hmm. And as a, when I was tiny, I think I wanted to be a mad professor type thing, um, which, because I was into these mad inventions, uh, there was something appealing about that. And then, What I found myself doing sometimes was I, I wake up in the morning on a weekend, I'm excited with this new idea. I'm going to build an assault course in the backyard. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just going to have like rope swings and have some nets and stuff like that. So instead of running out there and starting to piece it together, I would then grab a piece of paper and start sketching it out, trying to capture these ideas mm -hmm. down on paper. Mm -hmm. And then as I'm drawing it, 
um, and really just for myself at that point. I'm not creating a piece of art. I'm planning it on paper uh, and then changing it, you know, because I'm seeing the plan and then I'm seeing that this net is not very good and where I'm going to get that from, where do I hang it from, um, and then adjusting it. So what I didn't realize at the time was that I was essentially designing. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of that process uh, of designing the assault course, mm -hmm. I, my energy was, was already spent. I would, mm -hmm. I would move on. I wouldn't then run out and build it. I, I wouldn't really have the enthusiasm anymore. It kind of peaked already um, in putting it together. Mm -hmm. And of course, I was excited about the design, but let's go and eat. Let's go do something else now. Mm -hmm. So I was definitely more on the the um, design invention side of things. Mm -hmm. the, cre the creative process of that design was obviously the appeal of it. Mm -hmm. And of course, I wanted an assault course or whatever it was I was designing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the true energy was, and appeal was in the, the theoretical creation. Mm -hmm. um, so these are the only things you see afterwards. So I go through it, I'm design. I think that I'm going to go into graphic design, which then teaches me a little bit more about fine art mm -hmm. in this, this two-year foundation course, essentially very Bauhaus-like. Um, and so the fine art gets me into sculpture, which mm -hmm. gets me into the 3D department. And then I start seeing the people in, in the second year of that course, they're doing what was called product design. Mm -hmm. And I saw them there with markers and making prototypes and making things work. Mm -hmm. um, and I was instantly attracted to it because I love the sculpture because it had the creativity and it had the three dimensions that fine art didn't have. And so sculpture was incredibly appealing. But then looking at this prototype making and planning, that filled in the gaps for me. You know, it's like practical sculpture. And it, it appealed to that inventor side of me um, from earlier on. Um, so there was no going back after that point. Mm -hmm. Long answer to your short question. Uh, which school was then you went to? Um, so that was a local college, uh, which then gave me a portfolio so I could apply to get into the University of Northumbria. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was a four-year degree course in the north of England. In product design? In product design, mm -hmm. yeah. And I was very lucky and very happy to get in there. It was, it was highly competitive to get in there. Uh, it's known now as the school where Johnny Ive went. Mm -hmm. um, and he was actually just, um, he was in his final year when I started. So um, did you meet him? Yes. I mean, I, I didn't know him as such. Um, we were first years, uh, young, naive people looking at those older kids who knew how to do stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did have a bit of a reputation already at school, which was interesting. Uh, the, the, the lecturers, the professors had already kind of identified his talent, you know, before he graduated. I think he, he, he had gone through internships. And so they were obviously seeing a lot in him. Not just him, obviously other people, but it was interesting that uh, over the next couple of years, we kept on hearing about Johnny Ive, or Jonathan Ive, they would call him, because that's his name. Um, and and we were almost sick of hearing about this this person, yeah. you know, who just graduated and got some job at Tangerine, big deal. Um, and we saw his drawings on the, on the wall, and we were not impressed. 
you know, the, the professors, the lecturers had spoken to him, knew about the concepts and, and the depth of thought behind what yeah. was represented by that sketch. Mm. And that's the difference that he had. And we were too young and naive to understand that. We you saw just a sketch. At the quality of the... And we were just looking at the line work, yeah. you know, and shading. Yeah. And um, it does show you that you've got to be more than line work and shading mm -hmm. uh, to go as far as he did. Mm -hmm. It is. Um, yeah, anyway, Northumbria was, was, was great, great for five years, actually. I, I took mm -hmm. a year out and well, mm -hmm. extended it even longer. Mm -hmm. And then you got also the chance to experience a little bit of uh, international um, uh, workplaces. So. Yes, yeah, that's right. One of the appeals of Northumbria is that you do internships, and you have to do internships. Mandatory. It's mandatory. Yeah. And, um, and so my first internship was in England. Um, working at um, uh, a company that designed shop fittings and shop fitting systems and uh, amazing experience. But then the following year after a trip that we did abroad to Barcelona, I was inspired for my next internship to be abroad. And at first I thought, yeah, I want to go to Barcelona or, or Spain or somewhere and started looking about, uh, looking into different types of design how does Spanish design compare to German or French and what are the differences? Um, and then really got um, into understanding German design. Obviously, there's a very, very strong heritage um, of industrial design in Germany. Mm -hmm. I think it's wrong to call it German design. Um, mm -hmm. But the it, it just seemed to fit the way that I saw the design world. So then I started targeting Germany as, as being a place I could do internships. Uh, and I did. Um, it was crazy. I didn't know the language or anything. Um, but I sent applications out to a whole bunch of places um, under the ruse that I was, I will be in your, your town of Hanover, Stuttgart, Schwäbisch Gmund, or somewhere um, uh, in, in two weeks' time. <laughs> and would it be possible I can come by and just? some advice on my portfolio mm -hmm. um, and um, the German designers being uh, as nice as they are uh, uh, pretty much all re responded to me and said yes yes come by we don't normally allow people at short notice to come by but seeing as you're from England and all that way and you happen to be in town we'll let you in the door mm -hmm. and so that worked I got 10 interviews oh. within 10 days oh. which is crazy so I got all these responses, and I was I was hoping for like one or two, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that was amazing. So then I planned this trip of zipping up and down Germany within ten days. Um, there was only one company that actually turned me down, mm -hmm. uh, but I was I was pretty keen on seeing them. Um, so I, I did turn up at the door as well. Mm -hmm. It was a company in uh, Schwäbisch Gmünd. Um, and the secretary almost roughly tackled me as I was walking in. I, I just rang the bell and she came. Um, the, the designer answered uh -huh. the door. I'm standing there with my portfolio and he, he saw me. Like, physical oh, yeah, portfolio yeah. back then, right? Yeah, 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 physical portfolio back then, that's right. Uh, and he saw me with this and he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, come in. You must be here for an interview. Yeah. So he's taking me up to the meeting room and the secretary saw me and, and she was... Um, she must have spotted that I was English or something. I'm sure I stuck out. Um, and she said, no, 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 I told you, um, you, you cannot come by like this, unannounced and so on. 
And then the, the boss came out, he was like, it's okay, it's okay, I'll, I'll see him. <laughs> it was me breaking into design. Uh -huh. um, so it was, anyway, it was a cool trip. Um, I'd learned some very basic uh -huh. German along the way, uh, saying things like, I don't speak German, or where's the, the local train station? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, enjoyed every minute of it. And then got an internship and uh, picked up the language. Mm -hmm. Was it like A3 physical portfolios back then, right? Oh, it was bigger. Yeah, yeah. you know, A my later portfolio went down to A3. Okay. I think I had, I think it was an A2. My very first portfolio, which had artwork in, was A0, A4. Oh. Um, and that's what got me into Northumbria, because to, to apply for the course, you had to have a, a pretty good uh, portfolio, a physical portfolio. Yeah. Um, Yes, this was the last century that we're talking about. Yeah, uh, and I actually had slides, the uh, uh, like a uh, literally a slide reel, these little rotating things okay. with physical slides that you would put in the wrong way around and stuff so like this. So show it on a wall. Yeah. 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 So you turn up and, and there would be a projector okay. in the room. You can't imagine this. I know you've heard stories. Yeah. Um, so it, it was interesting. This was 1990, 1991. And it was at that time when you would have your slides, um, you know, in a sheet, mm -hmm. in uh, like a contact sheet, um, and then you would potentially have this little rotunda to take with you, mm -hmm. or you'd turn up there and then put the slides into the rotunda of their projector, mm -hmm. uh, and then project it onto the wall. Mm -hmm. um, or in some cases, people would just hold it up to the light. These tiny little slides, okay. ridiculous to think about. Um, but really, the art went down to your physical prints. You would mm -hmm. get really high-end photography. You would get the original sketches and drawings. So, you know, the quality of that was really important. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's interesting now because you get different dimensions coming in. Um, there was a whole different challenge back then to create this visual representation as creative and as, as original as possible. Mm -hmm. Now I think we're put into a tight frame. You've got to have a website and there's almost a standard layout for that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not about being creative about that. It, it, it is about the content, but you're able to put video animation, uh, bring, bring feel through within the images. Um, and there's so many more ways of doing it uh, than you could back then. Yeah, you had, you had to spend much more time on the presentation. Yes, well, right? and of uh, course, yes. you know, now you can spend records. all the time on the content presentations. Yes, yeah. yeah, and and that was part of the art. You know, the job of the design back then was doing a lot more physical um, rendering. Yeah, um, it was only in '95, I think, that uh, which sounds quite early, uh, that I first did digital rendering uh, using. Um, a Wacom tablet, um, which was, you know, physically separate from the screen back then. Um, and uh, that, that changed everything. You know, it was a whole different thing than getting digital. Mm -hmm. And now you've, um, at some point you founded um, Teams Design in the USA. Maybe you can tell a little bit about the story after your graduation and how did uh, that story happened? Right. And it's funny, we've gone into the, let's talk about last century stuff. Um, so, uh, yes, after graduation, it was, um, I'd already made my mind up to go back out to Germany. I really enjoyed the experience. I enjoyed the fact that also I was able to 
be someone who is different. Mm -hmm. uh, the standard and the level of industrial designs in Germany is very, very high. And Northumbria was a great school as well. Um, but the general standard in Germany was very high of the graduates. And the graduates were much older as well. Um, because, you know, in terms of life skills, they'd, they'd spent some time, I think you, you spent some time as well before college, um, and um, doing military service or doing uh, voluntary service in, in hospitals, things like that. And so um, your average graduate in England was 21, mm -hmm. graduating. And in Germany, they would start studying around 21. Um, and so there's me, the 22-year-old, starting up against um, uh, 27, 28-year-old uh, designers. Mm -hmm. um, after graduating, I had decided to go to Germany again. It, it, it was a very high level of design and a mature um, sensibility to it as well, which obviously some of that comes through the literal maturity of the designers, uh, junior designers. And Teams uh, back then was called Slani Design. Mm -hmm. And uh, once again, I tried to get a, a string of 10 interviews set up in a similar way to when I did it on my internships. Uh, I did have a number of um, interviews. Uh, I remember, remember Phoenix Design and Frog Design mm -hmm. were way up on my list. Uh, Teams Design might have been third or fourth mm -hmm. um, because the outside image was not that of uh, frog design, mm -hmm. you know, which was was very famous for industrial design at the time, mm -hmm. um, and uh, Phoenix Design also had wonderful ads in the Form magazine, the German magazine. And so those are the things you that appeal to you as a designer. They were very glamorous things. But when I went to Teams, um, I saw what they did and how they went about it. And it really changed it for me quite radically. Um, it, it went up to number one on my list. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, obviously, I, I loved going to Frog and seeing the place in Altensteig and, mm -hmm. and meeting the guys behind Phoenix. Um, but I suddenly saw how productive and the variety of things that they did at Teams and their approach. I mean, they were. They were all about the design, mm -hmm. you know, roll up your sleeves and dive in and do it. And there seemed to be a lot more posturing in a lot of other companies and, and, and a lot more um, of, of kind of a faux glamour side of things. Mm -hmm. And there's no way back then you could say Teams or, or sliding design was, was glamorous looking from the outside. Mm -hmm. um, but I liked it. I liked it a lot. I really liked the people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it did come down to a bit of a choice. I did get multiple offers um, between my interviews and I chose teams and started there and obviously I've not regretted it. Mm -hmm. yes. And that's been a long time. Okay. Um, fast forward a little bit. I was there for about five years mm -hmm. and um, we did a lot of work for the American market okay. back then from Germany, but we didn't have a branch out here. And it was actually Bosch that approached us, um, Bosch Power Tools, because we were designing and still are all their power tools and, and, and we were their turn to partner for everything. And they had bought a company over here, Skill, um, and the, having some difficulties in their eyes with the transition. They felt that the designs that were happening over here were not not Bosch enough. Mm -hmm. They were too American, <laughs> okay. which of course was a 
a very geomocentric way of looking at it. Um, but the what they needed, what they asked us for, was to have teams in in America being very hands-on, looking after their design there and not trying to design from Germany. Um, so that's actually what tipped the balance. We were already very interested in the American market uh, because we were designing for it. Yeah. And then being here obviously helps a heck of a lot. And so because I was doing a lot of Bosch work, uh, the language and culture background helped. And I believe I was seen as being the right person for the job. Uh, I was asked to come out here and okay. set up office. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really wondering about how that all happened. Uh, so, yeah, uh, was it like more of a personal drive? Did you say, I want to go to the US? You know, is there a way of you know, bringing teams to Zen there, or uh, was it more of an external force? So, um, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. Where did you choose Chicago? Um, well, for a number of reasons, but a, a very good reason was because Bosch Power Tools uh, was here. Okay. Um, but we did weigh up other locations because it was important that we're not reliant on Bosch. Yeah. You know, obviously, yeah. we'd have to set up and work with a number of uh, different companies uh, anywhere in the US. And um, Chicago was a very, very good fit. It's <laughs> second city. You know, it's not New York and it's not LA. And it sort of had the, the right mentality, the, the, the Midwestern mentality uh, that it's associated with. Um, with, with the middle band of America mm. is not too different from where Teams is based in Germany. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, the the um, Swabian outlook on life. Yeah. Uh, what is it? It's Schaffer, Schaffer, Hoyselbau. Mm -hmm. The Midwest of Germany. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it, it seemed like the right approach. It's yeah. not all high glam New York. You know, that didn't seem like a good fit. Uh, for the company as it was then. Um, and generally, the situation looked very good. And I, I love Chicago. It's a great place. It's very metropolitan. There's great connections all around the US. And um, almost all of our clients are outside of Chicago. So it's not as if we're here just for the clients. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a, it's a nice central place. Mm -hmm. And how about that process of uh, founding Team Cezanne here and then? Um, um, you know, setting it up and then growing it also over the years. I'm wondering a little bit about that that process. You know, coming from Germany and also being quite young. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, I think I was 12 at the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. It, it's it was amazing amount of trust that was put upon me to just go out and do it. And in in Esslingen, the headquarters, they were just very busy with all the work, and and so it was very much just given to me as a project to set it up, do whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. And so prior to coming here, I did uh, internet research, which is amazing for 1998. Um, and uh, obviously found the office and it was just me coming over and my first employee was an intern. Mm -hmm. And soon after that started hiring full-time staff one after the other after the other. And we grew quite fast, but yeah, as a, as a personal experience, uh, it was incredible. I'd never been to America before this came up. Um, and and so coming here with, with wide eyes and not really understanding everything. And yes, the language is somewhat different, um, but uh, the language was not the issue. I think a lot of it was, it was really important to understand um, the American approach towards design. 
because if you look at it from the outside, you you become quite blinkered. You look through through it with a European filter or a British filter or a German filter, uh, and and you can very easily become quite skeptical or not really see the true idiosyncrasies of of uh, how design is done here. And I'm not calling it American design. I don't think that really exists. Um, but there, there was definitely a different approach here, different expectations. And at the time, um, products uh, looked very different. The mass of products um, in the consumer side of things, as well as industrial, um, was did look very different from mm. from uh, European versions of the same. Do you still see a big difference even nowadays when it comes to the American approach? Definitely less of a difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, back then, you could identify it as being in, in America. You know, the business success was was very important mm -hmm. in releasing a product or a line of products. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot more research that was done here. So focus groups or user research mm -hmm. to see if a new launch of product mm -hmm. is going to be accepted mm -hmm. by the market or not. Mm -hmm. um, And, and in doing so, if you go into focus groups, you're pulling in people who have had that product. Mm -hmm. They bought it five years ago. It was designed five, five years before that, mm -hmm. um, based upon um, a culture that existed probably five years before that. So it's very backwards. Their point of reference is very backwards thinking. And so you go into the research and you're asking these people and showing them something new and radical It's very hard on the spot for that person to say, yes, I love it. Uh, and so generally you get very conservative choices. And that, in effect, um, affected the choice of design that would then be released by companies. So in European eyes, they looked at American uh, products as being very conservative, you know, very small steps. And conversely, Americans looked at European design as being bold and radical, you know, Alessi or Krups or wherever you're looking. There, there are some strong firms out there with a big statement. Mm -hmm. Now, on the uh, business success side of things, in, in Europe, it was not guaranteed. You launch these products, it's a statement of the company. And in Europe, they did a lot less of those focus groups or, or user research before launching a product. It's like, well, I don't care what, what people are going to tell me. We are going to launch this because this is the best product that we can do. Why should we research it? And so it gets launched, it gets sold, and it, it's either a hit or it's not. It's a risky business. And in, in the States, it was more conservative, safe approach. So those two dynamics, the strategy of the companies, affected the, the, the visual impression that you got from, from products in both areas. The reason I'm explaining the background is that was then. Things changed. Yeah. Was Research has been uh, adopted um, fully in Europe, in Italy, Germany, England, wherever, uh, getting consumer feedback on things. And vice versa, um, visual brand language or a statement of a company or innovative breakthrough designs, those things have been adopted wholeheartedly in your average American uh, manufacturing brand. Um, I remember in the, I 
again, going back to the last century. Uh, I think it was 1997, 98 or something. There was a, there was a book called um, Innovate or Die. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy to think that that was a rally, rallying call. That it, it was radical to say that you need innovation or your, your products will die, your company will die if you don't have innovation. These days, it's like everyone knows you need innovation. Mm -hmm. Everyone's talking innovation. So if you look at that, you know, over those 20 years, there has been that big mental shift and therefore uh, an acceptance, a greater acceptance in the US towards design, towards design strategy, towards innovation and it, uh, design's role towards innovation and, and tying innovation and design to financial success. Mm -hmm. And I swear in the, the 90s, that was not the talk. Um, uh, when I came here in 98, I uh, started talking to a lot of designs in the community. And a lot of that discussion was about, okay, we designers shouldn't be artists. We should be walking the walk and talking the talk now. We need to act like business people. Uh, and there was that transition that happened through the 90s from being artisans in the corner to now talking the talk that the marketers like. Mm -hmm. uh, again, this is old hat, right? I think we've, we've gone through that door and some others uh, in the meantime. Mm -hmm. um, but these things, these things affect uh, design. It affects the strategies that we use within design. Uh, it's everything. Now, yes, it's a, it's a completely different world. Yeah. What would be your advice to um, people who want to start want to start their own design studio? Ah. Um, I yeah, a number of things come come to mind when you say that. Yeah. Uh, if I think of somebody who is graduating and is a little scared of jumping into some corporate uh, job or a consultancy and they're not sure what they should do or if they should commit and they are enticed by the thought of now setting up, doing their own thing, maybe doing a Kickstarter or setting up their own design firm. Um, don't do it, <laughs> would be my advice. <laughs> don't come straight out of school yeah. and do it. It's very, very hard. Yeah. And this is not based upon my experience because my experience, I had a leg up when I came here, yeah. even though it was just me and building a company around that. I was building around something that existed already, a heritage. Yeah, on a existing framework. Yeah. yeah. And um, we had, we were not recognized back then, but we had a portfolio to become recognized uh, more than a graduate just coming out of school. Yeah. So my experience was, was not as hard as it is for someone setting yeah. up their own firm. It's not only is it hard, but it's, it's also, um, you do need a lot more experience. Um, to become that company, to become um, as high as you need to be on the totem pole uh, when you create that company, either as a freelancer or setting up a, a collaborative company. Yeah. So experience is key. The other thing I'd say that's, that's very important in that situation, um, even with that experience and a number of years behind your belt, setting up a company, you've got to look at the differentiation. There's lots of design consultants out there, freelancers, um, who are offering design and wonderful sketches and ergonomics. And, you know, the skill set is very high. Compa uh, 
uh, the competing skill sets is out there. And we on the inside can be quite skeptical that that company is not as good as us and they're not as good as us. But really you need a very strong point of differentiation to the point at which it might be specialization. Mm -hmm. You're going to be known for something. Um, and I think for a company that's starting out, it's hard to commit to that because you want every job you can do. And you know you can do medical, you can do furniture, you can do outdoor fishing gear or something. Um, but if people are talking about you, yeah, he does design and it's fairly good, right? Compared to, yeah, he does outdoor equipment and you know he's the turn-to person for that, or he's the turn-to person to do coffee machines. You know, if, 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 if you have that label, then eventually that work is going to come to you. So the specialism and reputation, obviously the skill set that supports that, that area is really going to make a strong business mm -hmm. over time, three, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, whereas if you're a generalist, you're going to be fighting that fight every single year. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And what's interesting also, because I mean, in Chicago, you started up with Bosch and Skill as the first clients, and you had sort of a specialization in uh, ID there, right? But you've been growing with teams design also to other disciplines, right? Now you do UX design as well. and um, other things. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how did you grow in these other aspects of design? Yeah, so Bosch obviously was, was the instigator bringing us over here, but we also had a lot of um, uh, experience in kitchen, bathroom, and other household yeah. areas, and also industrial. So even now, we do a fair amount of industrial commercial things like forklift trucks or uh, robots and things on that side. Um, our website might um, skew towards the, the more glamorous consumer products. Um, but to your question about the different aspects of ID, such as UX, and, and, and I think some of the approaches have grown through time. So again, going back 20 years, industrial design, we saw it as being a, a larger thing. Uh, concept to production data. It was important, you know, that we saw ideas not just being sketches of cool ideas passed over the wall to someone. We're not unique there, I know. Um, but industrial design itself has grown all these peripheral areas now. Um, UX quite recently that's come about almost as a, as a well, it is a separate profession. It was interesting seeing how industrial designers reacted to UX at first. They're like, uh, what is user experience really? We've always been doing that. Why is that different? Yeah. And, and it was almost shunned at the start. I, I felt like I was going a little bit against the, uh, the stream in, in not being quite so skeptical because I did get to see and, and I, I feel like I embraced uh, UX processes and, and methods because we did um, user research to find insights about what people wanted. We did user flow. We did uh, journey mapping mm -hmm. before UX was invented, mm -hmm. right? And, and to design for the user was not breaking news for us. However, we didn't do it in the, the strictly collaborative way that UX did. Mm -hmm. UX opened the, opened the doors and said, okay, we're going to journey map together. 
We felt we were being collaborative by doing a journey map and now presenting it and explaining it to our client. But that's not truly collaborative. It felt collaborative at the time. Um, but I experienced the difference in actually creating a journey map with a team of interdisciplinary people to see the difference. And the difference affects the entire project moving forward because now everyone really felt and, and knew about the, the steps within that journey map or whatever it is that we're doing. So we did workshops before, but workshops are different now. So we have adjusted as a company. We embraced it quite some time ago, um, but I did see a lot of skepticism in the industrial design community towards UX. Um, or there's the UX side of research as well. It's, it's interesting that the, the term is used for so many different things. Yes. It feels like it's still early days. Um, but the processes, if you go back to the processes and the uh, adaption, the easy adaption of things like agile uh, process within UX or design thinking with, within UX, uh, I think it's, it's a very useful additional perspective to have as a designer. You list these activities under UX, it's like, yeah, done that, can do it. But it's a different perspective. And again, it comes down to that collaborative nature. And the, the cool thing I, I uh, noticed quite early on as well is that UX is suddenly accepted as uh, by our clients as being something that they should be doing and therefore they will participate. We'll do a UX workshop with them. Uh, we'll do journey mapping with them uh, as part of UX. And it's completely accepted. We've always wanted that. We didn't truly do it because the engineers, the marketers didn't feel it's their responsibility to be part of that. The old game was we deliver those things. We tell them about what the user wants mm -hmm. and we defend that. Uh, but now it's everyone's responsibility under this, this new game called UX. Mm -hmm. And now the marketers and engineers and everyone involved is equally concerned about the user experience. And that is a revelation. It's excellent. Do you think it's because of the terminology? Because it's a different word. Um, it's, it's easier to, to grasp for people, the, the value? I think so. And it could have been a different term. Um, so it's not necessarily the, the nomenclature, but the fact that there is a term and that it is a thing that is associated with um, better design, better development. Mm -hmm. And, and I think particularly at a corporate level, it's very important to adapt to tried and true processes. It's not about reinventing a process that, that you don't know will result in success. And so if you do this process, if you go through these steps, the general belief is that at the end of it, you have a product or service um, that checks all the boxes and therefore this should be good. Now, it's not to say that, you know, the product or service truly is good because you went through all the processes, mm -hmm. but then it, it does give you a certain safety net. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard with any product or service at the end of a project to truly prove to say, yes, this is the best it could be under the timing with, with the people that we had. Mm -hmm. But if you have a process and you did it and it felt right, 
and everyone has confidence that that end result is correct. Mm -hmm. Right or wrong, that's the dynamic that happens. So we talked a little bit about UX as one of the, the big influences in industrial design in the last years. Uh, what uh, what are also so, the things that, that changed industrial design over the last yeah, years? So, so prior to that, I, I think there was the industrial design, as I said, through the 90s, it seemed, in the US at least, there seemed to be this, you know, we're not artisans now, we're business people. Let's do the marketing talk. And so a lot of discussion then was um, about research. Uh, insights research was was uh, becoming more and more popular, more important and embraced by industrial designers. Um, again, that was part of talking the talk and understanding what the marketers mm -hmm. want from things. Um, the next level, I think, is where technology kicks in. And so with industrial design, um, you get new technology and new tools that led to the maker movement, which we don't talk about quite so much now, but the maker movement was also emancipated, I guess, through um, the, the ability to quickly mock things up, to prototype Arduino, uh, 3D printers. You've got all these these new tools that uh, help you prototype, help you go online, get feedback, survey monkey. So one person now can come up with an idea and make it almost manufacturable, test it, and compete against the big guys, right? So the maker movement, I think, in the background of ID, definitely had an influence because it, it helped purvey a lot of these tools that they were using and make it more mainstream, make things like 3D printing cool. Um, and then the uh, combination of makers and then Kickstarter mm -hmm. now also really embedded a new spirit for industrial designers. And so suddenly we felt that we, industrial designers, we almost had everything it takes to, to create our own business instead of designing for someone else's brand, someone else's business. And so it's very tempting to suddenly do your own Kickstarters like everyone was doing it. Um, and it, it has then, instead of walking the walk in, in terms of how do I now do uh, communicate better with marketers at a company, the attention was how do I now create my own business? And it goes beyond the design of an object and the prototyping, but how do I now source uh, where I can make that? How do I choose between materials? How do I go from short uh, batch production into mass production? Uh, how do I now market it if I'm not reliant on Kickstarter? Or what happens after Kickstarter? So designers are suddenly involved in a whole different discussion that has affected industrial design because now we're looking at the big picture, the ecosystem of a product or service uh, beyond it being a sexy looking sketch. Mm -hmm. um, so on one side, you could say, well, that's taken away from one side uh, of our craft because now we're spending more time looking at the business side of things and less time improving our sketching, model making, rendering craft. Mm -hmm. um, but it, 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 it's, um, it's an important trade-off. I, I think it's very important for today's industrial designers to have a good sense of that side of business. Mm -hmm.
And where do you see this going in terms of the, the future of industrialism? Do you see how do you see these things evolving? Um, I do see that continuing. I mean, it's not about uh, you know the future is not about Kickstarter. Right? Yeah. That that changed things. But what it did was it it just created more attention. Uh, to how businesses and product business uh, can work. And it also meant that a small brand can compete against the big ones. So it kind of opened up the door for possibilities. Uh, go back to technology as being the, the change in, uh, amplifier, uh, amplifier, sorry. I, uh, I'm very much involved in IoT, the Internet mm -hmm. of Things. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that is now getting coupled very fast with AI. Mm -hmm. And I think those are two huge outside influences um, that will change our profession. Mm -hmm. um, I jumped into IoT a few years ago to get a good understanding of it. Um, here at Teams, we were already doing for our clients a fair amount of IoT-related work. Um, some of it was dealing with embedded systems that would now connect to a database, and then that database would feed to a web page somewhere or a back-end portal. And so we, we kind of came out from the physical world. We started hiring our UI staff uh, 10 years ago, but then um, the physical and the digital world uh, very quickly overlapped. Mm -hmm. And so that's where you get to IoT very fast yeah. because anything electronic is now going to be connected or it's just a dumb object. And therefore, we need to think of these experiences as being more holistic. Mm -hmm. I'm not the first to say that, but it is it is something that changed mm -hmm. us as a company. Um, six, seven years ago, we had a big global meeting, a summit of, of, of all our five branches. The heads came together. We, we talked about um, those changes. How much do we uh, morph what we consider industrial design to embrace UI, um, what was almost called UX back then, mm -hmm. um, but the, the things that were already happening, um, it wasn't known as IoT back then, but we were already doing a lot of embedded um, software work. Uh, and then later on, of course, we're working with Bosch, and, uh, with, um, with various companies understanding their approach to IoT. So, um, in doing so, we, we've also got some background knowledge of IoT on an individual product basis, mm -hmm. but also on a strategy basis, mm -hmm. talking with a lot of companies um, in, in their adapting IoT as a whole, not just on one product. And that's the best way a company can go about it. The worst way is, is to look at it myopically just within one product. Mm -hmm. This product has an app and it connects to a database somehow. It's a big commitment for a company, and the company needs to look company-wide, product-wide. Why are we going to IoT? It's a big effort. What do we get from it? And yes, why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of companies have felt they got forced into it, didn't, didn't really have a strategy or a plan. And so what we're doing at Teams now is we seem to be that voice of reason. We have some of our clients turning to us and, and, and um, asking those questions about, well, you know, if we... If we did start doing IoT now, how would we do that? And so we're able now to talk about, well, okay, this is the sort of strategy you could have. We're no experts, but we have the experience. 
uh, that we're able to share and, uh, and also to show some of the, the many, many pitfalls of companies uh, going down the wrong paths. And it also makes sense, uh, I assume, to do it all together, right? Because, I mean, if you just hire it for the ID and, you know, if it's an IoT product and you can't think about the other touch points, right. uh, then I think it will be hard to have that uh, much of an uh, impact or really think these things together, right? Yes. Um, so I see there also IoT as a gateway, I think, for industrial design to be in a conversation with, uh, with other design disciplines or be connected with other design disciplines. Yes, it's very true. And, and understanding what, what uh, the basics of IoT items are, or that connected product is in the ecosystem, I'd say is, is absolutely mandatory for industrial designs. Now, what's a database mean? Um, how do we user test things? Uh, what is this experience that we talk about? So we as a company, we've, we've now, we're traditionally an industrial design company, we are now an experienced design company because a lot of what, what we're designing is more than just that mm -hmm. traditional physical product. Mm -hmm. And the experience comes from a combination of strategy and research. And so the, the turning uh, of those ideas and concepts into reality is, is, is is uh, also a major part of what we do. Uh, but the experience is in the center of it all. Call it UX. UX, I think, gets put into a little box. We've, we, we use the term experience more broadly because when it comes to IoT, why should we be looking at, at, at IoT? Because we are designing the experience, right? And it doesn't matter if it's on the physical or on the digital or the intangible or back end or uh, the influences or the, the people who somehow surround this product in some way. Um, it, the, the experience has been obviously recognized as being a valuable aspect, a financially valuable aspect for companies. They know they need it. Um, however, companies also know they need IT, uh, sorry, IOT. And something we see companies doing is Step number one, okay, IoT, it's very technical. Let us ask our IT experts, our IT department, <laughs> the guys that have been, uh, you know, setting up your printer to your laptop for years. <laughs> Now, they do know their technical stuff, right? I'm not undermining the IT department whatsoever. But their, their world, their Weltblick, is, is coming from a technical basis. Okay, we need these sensors, we need this form of communication, these protocols, uh, and this sort of database. Whereas really, when you're designing an IoT experience, right, product or service, you've got to start with that user. Because if you're collecting data, you want that data to be good data. So let's have a look at the experience that person's having with the object, and therefore that data is going to be better. So should the IT person be designing an experience or the designer, right? Obviously, I'm flying our flag on that one. But this is why industrial designers need to embrace and understand IoT because it's coming. Well, it's here. Um, and you have to understand it, navigate it, and create better experiences. We're traditionally the people defending the people, the humans, Right, because we don't care too much about the sales figures or how many people buy something. I mean, we want it to be successful, 
but truly designers, we're we're the ones that are trying to make the people have a good experience with the object, with the brand. So it's important that we know how IoT changes that experience and we make it a good one. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a recommendation for also students, right? To uh, or everyone in design to adapt to this topic, right? right? Even old people like me. I mean, it, <laughs> embrace it. Uh, it's it's it is complicated. Yeah. Uh, the further you go down that path, it reminded me as, as I was going down that path myself. It reminded me of the sustainability topic. Um, Interesting. Sustainability in terms yeah. of design. Yeah. On the outside, it seems simple. It's like, oh yes, uh, let's use green materials instead of less good materials. But then you start questioning, and you, the further you, the more you know, the more complex it gets. It's not as simple as switching out materials. There are 64 other ways of approaching sustainability when it comes to products uh, beyond just switching out materials. Uh, and so I think it's the same with IoT. The more you know, the more complex it gets. But we've got to do this because our job is to defend the humans mm-hmm. from um, the people with the technology and the people who want IT money, people. right? <laughs> you know, nothing against IT people, but yeah. you know, we're the ones in charge of experience now. So we should we should uh, understand our craft. Mm-hmm. Do you see any negative trends or topics that worry you when it comes to um, design looking? looking into the future or uh, also something you notice at the moment? Yeah, sort of a big one there is AI. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's as exciting to me as it is troublesome, Mm -hmm. more so than IoT. Uh, IoT without AI, I think in five years' time, we're not going to think of IoT and AI as as have ever been separate. How? How or why did we collect masses of data and then try and slice it and understand it without AI is the way we're going to see it. So with that in mind, how is AI going to change what we do? Um, It's affecting engineering in many ways, as as is well known, with uh, iterative design, Mm -hmm. interestingly. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also helping us with very, very complex uh, amounts of data. And so we're talking about IoT, collecting data. So how do I now use that data to understand something like the human experience uh, with the product? Mm-hmm. Um, well, AI. AI is going to be excellent for us designers. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's also scary and the fact that a lot of AI um, can be when it's most effective, we don't truly know how it's working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we are heading towards those scary scenarios. We've seen so many sci-fi movies, right, to know that we're heading towards that thing, um, towards that entity that is obviously more clever than us. All the pieces are in place. Um, we, we have nanotechnology um, that's creating um, supercomputers that, that can calculate incredibly fast you apply AI there and you connect all of human consciousness, i.e. the internet, to it, um, how could this possibly go wrong? <laughs> so again, I think we designers who have a little bit of influence on this subject matter, we should um, understand the consequences of what we're doing and speak up when when things might be heading the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. 
I don't think we're going to be the ones who who are uh, there at the right time to avoid the ultimate disaster, whatever that is, from whichever sci-fi movie you choose. Um, but in the meantime, our job is to help steer culture and understanding and people's expectations and approaches towards technology. Mm-hmm. Right? We want people to understand technology. We want it to be intuitive. Mm-hmm. We want it to be in a way that, that people embrace. Mm-hmm. And I think that's our role. Because if people shun technology, technology is still going to advance by itself. It doesn't matter what we do to it. So I'd rather that people understand it, embrace it, and therefore we have the mass with us to be able to resist whatever bad technology comes our way. There's also a lot of talk about embracing AI right, as a designer and looking into uh, you know, how can this be part of also of the design process. Uh, we were talking a little bit uh, now also about the, the, the end scenarios and how this will all go. But in terms of the, the things that might change for design as a discipline mm-hmm. um, going forward, how do you see that topic of you know, embracing design and design process? Which parts of the design process will still be important mm-hmm. well maybe other parts and maybe the AI will t- uh, do most of it yeah I think the what, where we're seeing AI surprisingly come in first within design is the iterative creative side of things mm-hmm. um, and so very quickly AI can look at the approaches that have happened in the past uh, and then use the knowledge of the best engineer possible and now look at okay these these 20 different ways, mm-hmm. like design thinking, these 20 different ways are 20 different approaches to solve the problem that you just told me about. Um, what it's not doing though is coming up with uh, the question or the strategy. So I think as the waters are rising, mm-hmm. at the bottom you've got styling iterations based upon trends, mm-hmm. right? AI, very good at, or becoming very good at visual recognition of trends and will become better than us. Designers, we soak that in on an everyday, right? We get a gut feel. I believe AI is going to catch up pretty good uh, and be more accurate, right? It doesn't mean it's going to have that artistic side of things necessarily. Anyway, that's that's at the bottom end of things. But the strategic approach and our understanding of other humans and our nuances um, and our gut feel are the things that we're going to keep. Mm-hmm. And so I think as an industrial designer, yes, we do need to think broadly. We need to be the people who are inputting the question and are in charge of the question. You also need to steer the process. Right? Steer the process, yes. Yeah. And AI is great at finding the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and a favorite book of mine and, and, and many designers um, is the... Uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm-hmm. a series of books. And there, uh, I was reminded the other day of there was a fictional computer that was created over a period of 5,000 years or something on this special planet. Um, and the computer was called Deep Thought, mm-hmm. I think it was. And so um, they finally finished this computer. It was the, the best thing that anyone in the universe could make. And they approached them and asked them, the question, what is the meaning of life? And then Deep Thought said, yes, I'm going to need to think about this. How long do you need? 5,000 years. And they come back and it, it answers, after all this time, the whole universe is watching, 42, right? So it's quite a famous question and answer uh, set in that book. But we are at that point where 
um, understanding the question is more important than the answer. And it's our role to understand the implications of any questions we put into AI, mm -hmm. because it knows way beyond what we can know. It can iterate beyond any designer, dare I say. It can be creative in a way that traditional computers, computer thinking couldn't be. Um, but it's not in charge of our destiny in the way that we are. Would you, would you actually say that the, if you look at the design process, the last part, say like the last 50%, are maybe more in danger when it comes to AI? Or? Yes. Um, I feel the real AI break, breakthrough and there'll be a lot of practice of the complete process. I think as it comes into industrial design as an activity, it will be the one that goes from uh, research, right? Taking its big brain and using mm -hmm. it um, through iteration and through development. And I, I, I'd like to think of it in the way that you described that the engineering portion turning to production, which seems more rational, could easily be um, uh, turned over to AI. But I think the front end can as well. It's just not necessarily going to have the, the richness um, or necessarily the strategy behind it. So if I want to now create a product, I need to well, get AI to create the product for me. I need to now make certain decisions as to who it's for and how it's going to be, what sort of timeline, what sort of volumes, the sort of things that we would look at as a briefing in design now. I believe the system will be able to take things forward. Our role in this is doing the same process, but a qualitative version of it. So I think we're still going from A to Z, and we will use these tools at multiple times during the process. There can be the A to Z by itself, or we use it all the way through, just like CAD in a sense. We use it as an assistant. Um, we use digital rendering at the start. We use various digital methods to help compile research. Uh, we use basic CAD. We use digital 3D printing and, and also we digitally create the tooling. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't mean that we don't have a role in the process, even though it seems the computers are doing all the steps. Um, so AI could do A to Z, but I think its best role in, in my optimism is that it's our partner mm -hmm. in the process. Mm -hmm. And it'll be a good one too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I think we need to wrap this up. Thank yeah. you so much. Amazing insights. Thank It's you so much. Fascinating talk. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. That was the episode. If you want to give us feedback on the podcast, have something to contribute to the next episode, or just want to get in touch, feel free to connect with us either on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram messages, or simply via the designdrives.org website. We love to hear from you.